Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It was a packed house last Friday night at WNYC's Green Space when I sat down with singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash to talk about her new album. The conversation quickly turned to the sources of her creativity and the themes of mortality and love and gothic female being. This is her first record in nearly five years, and the four-time Grammy winner calls it her most personal album to date. The title track was just named one of the top five songs of 2018 by the New York Times. As the Boston Globe said, she is both speaking out and looking inward. And you said there's nothing outside of yourself there. Not in this record, no. The last three albums I did were themed albums. Black Cadillac about loss and then The List, which was a covers record of the list of of songs my dad had given me when I was a kid. And then The River and the Thread, the last one, which was really a geography, both emotional and ancestral and musical of the South. And I really didn't want to do a themed record again. I felt this urgency to get back to personal songwriting. Urgency is how I experienced the record. Mm. I mean, it's lush, it's gorgeous, but there is a sense that there are things that you have to say. You say them with a kind of eloquence that allows every listener to sort of project themselves into it. Brooke, I'm actually blushing. Thank you. (laughs) But why do you think it took 14 albums to produce the most personal (laughs) ones so far? I just don't give a damn anymore. (laughs) Exactly. I just, um, I mean, we were talking about this before, about we're two months apart in age. And at this point in our lives, you're just not people pleasing anymore. You don't have any more Fs to give. That's, you don't have any more Fs to give. That's exactly right. (laughs) And, um, And yet, we still have a lot to say and less time to say it. So there's a feeling of urgency that everything I want to do in my life, lyrically, musically, personally, I, I have to do it now. How much of it is about taking stock? A lot. I mean, you and I, we were talking about both gratitude and freedom before we came out here. What do you want the most? I want to feel grateful and I want to feel free. And taking stock of regrets so that you can finally let them go, taking stock of how much rage you still have left in your body so I can put it in a song, (laughs) and the preciousness of what I have, you know, a long-term relationship, children, work I love. Five kids. Five kids. Gave birth to four, got one for free. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot of box tops, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember the first song you ever wrote? I do, but you're not going to ask me to tell you anything about it, I hope. Like, not even, like, two lines? Well, I will tell you, because I had to do this show called First and Worst. It was a fundraiser from um, the Music Health Alliance, which is a great cause, which is the only reason I did this. You had to play the first song you ever wrote and the worst song you ever wrote. They happened to be the same song (laughs) for me. 
And it was called uh, Love Has Lost Again. Isn't that deep? <laughs> so tell me about the only thing worth fighting for. T-Bone Burnett and I have been friends for a long time. He's a great producer, uh, music supervisor, beautiful soul. He was music supervisor for True Detective. So he called me up and he said, will you write some lyrics that are kind of about destruction and maybe there's a bird in it and some, you know, he <laughs> just kind of went on and on. I go, yeah, that's my wheelhouse, I'll do that. And so I wrote these lyrics and sent them to him and he and Lyra Lynn wrote the music and it ended up opening the second season of True Detective. And even though it was a commissioned work in a way, it was still like really me, it was still where I was in my life. So even that one and a second song that he asked me to write lyrics for called My Least Favorite Life, they were still me, it was, it was all there. It's all you can do right now. It's all I can do right now. That's right. What else am I going to do? <laughs> Get it from television? You know, I don't think so. Can we hear it? Yes. I want to ask Zev Katz, Sean Pelton, and John Leventhal to come up.
no fear But I'm not her, you never were The kind who can't do What I said was never What I meant Now you see my world in flames My shadow songs, my deep regret Did you always think you were going to do music? I thought I was going to be a writer. In fact, I knew I was going to be a writer from preteen. And you have. You've written three books. Yeah. A collection of short stories. And a lot of essays, yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to go into music because I just thought being famous was the worst thing that could happen to you. And the danger of becoming famous if you were a musician was really high. <laughs> so it took me a while to get over that and realize yeah. that you could have a, your work in public and still have a private life. Mm-hmm. That was what held you back. Well, also, I had a parent who was really successful in that field, and why would I want to draw comparisons? I was interested to read that Joni Mitchell, and in particular the album Blue, was really important to you. I remember that Dylan wrote Tangled Up in Blue because he couldn't stop playing blue. As well he should have. <laughs> um, I mean, it's almost a cliche, isn't it? Women of our generation and Joni Mitchell's blue, it was just a bucket of cold water in the face. For me, though, it was the first time I realized that women could be songwriters. And at that point, in my life, I knew Lennon McCartney, I knew my dad, I knew all these great male songwriters. It didn't occur to me that women could be songwriters until Blue. And not only could they be songwriters, but they could use their internal lives as the raw clay for art. Put it out in a public sphere and have it be legitimate, valued, important even. That was an eye-opener. I can trace everything I do back to that moment. What about collaboration? I love collaboration, particularly now. I was far more territorial when I was younger and didn't want anyone to mess up my stuff, you know. But 
that hubris, once you let that fall away, there's a lot of opportunity for um, expansion and using someone else's gifts and offering your own and the sum being greater than the parts. That guy over there? John, yeah, that John guy, Leventhal. John Leventhal. <laughs> your husband? Yeah, we uh, work together a lot. How does that shape songs? Um, do, do you find that there's a, a kind of a creative tension that he's pushing one way or pushing another? Or yeah, does, he, does he take your vision and refine it or or I mean no what's the guy <laughs> what what does the guy do <laughs> he's the most gifted musician I know number one so I end up deferring to him on a lot of musical questions and rightly so because he has this uh, depth and grasp and beautiful sense of harmonics that I reach for that I really benefit from when we work together. And he doesn't write lyrics that much, so you know he likes my lyric writing, so we work together really well. But he is very opinionated in the studio, and I <laughs> end up, I mean, sometimes we get in you mean fights. Like more cowbell? <laughs> yeah, more cowbell. <laughs> we get in fights, but it ends up being in the service of what we're doing, hopefully. You know, you can go, you can go, well, you know, you didn't like the way I sang that note, that means you don't love me, or you can just <laughs> get down to work. But the like a novelist, the subject matter of this album is the stuff of your life. Yeah. There's the song Crossing to Jerusalem. Is that a portrait of a marriage? It is. There are two songs, really, that are about being in a long-term relationship, crossing to Jerusalem and not many miles to go. And at some point in a long marriage, you realize that it's inevitable that one of you is going to leave the other, that you're going to see each other to the end of half of that union. And it's unspeakably sad, and yet it makes every moment kind of buzz with more pleasure and preciousness. At least that's how I've felt it. And um, there's this story, it's probably apocryphal, about what? Dostoevsky. He was, before the fi firing squad... I love how you went from me to Dostoevsky, by the way. <laughs> that was really good. Well, it's really relevant. I'm not kidding. He's before the firing squad. He's about to be killed by the czar Jesus, for okay. uh, for being involved in an assassination plot, and then blindfolded. Here's the guns cock, and then the sound of the hooves, and he's reprieved. And he said, according to the story, that he wants to spend every minute as if it is his last, because that's when you feel truly alive. And he struggled but he couldn't hold on to it. It just sort of slipped ineluctably from his fingers, you know? But it does for all of us. Who can hold on to that every moment of your life? You can't. I mean, unless you're Buddha, you know, the rest of us just work to get it once a week, maybe. But the knowledge is there. That's a lot. And the knowledge is there that it's more precious and it's shorter. I see lots of similarities, although he had a gambling problem. <laughs> you have been an activist for a very long time. 
You said on World Cafe, I was taught if you don't speak your conscience, if you don't have the courage to state your own convictions, then you're not worth very much. You have been very engaged in the issue of gun control. And although this is not a political album, I think it's fair to say that the song, and, and we aren't going to play it now, but you guys should listen to it, Eight Gods of Harlem, is about that. It is. That's a song I wrote with Chris Christopherson and Elvis Costello. It plays out one scene, and we each play a character. I'm the mother, Chris is the father, Elvis the brother, of a child who dies in gun violence. And we wrote and recorded that song in one day. John produced it, and it was one of the most magnificent experiences in the studio I've ever had. But the song is really about how losing one child to gun violence, it doesn't just affect the family. It ripples out to the community, to the city, to the world, whether we are conscious of it or not. Do you think that, we're, uh, that there's ever going to be any traction on that issue? Politically? I have a little bit of hope right now with the new Congress. And people like Gabby Giffords and Chris Murphy in Connecticut, they're so relentless in their passion for this issue and for getting background checks and just basic common sense gun laws and like realizing that a person's right to own an arsenal of military-style weapons is not written into the Constitution. And just getting people to recognize that in government... I do have some hope right now. Mm. Copyright has been an issue for you. Yeah. I mean, most copyright laws were written pre-internet, pre-World War II, some of them pre-World War I, and they just don't make sense anymore. Getting musicians paid in the digital realm is really difficult. And I see young musicians quit all the time, and it's heartbreaking. So I'm on the board of an organization, Artists' Rights Alliance, and I realize that I'm probably working in a garden whose flowers I'm never going to see, <laughs> but there's a next generation who hopefully will benefit. I want you to sing another song. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's about your parents. It's about everybody's parents. It's about getting older. It's a gorgeous song. You know, it's a standout. Yeah, it's... um. I think that's the only time in the studio that John and I both teared up. But he's just no, not he's admitting it. No, something in my eye. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, it's about everybody's parents, but about <coughs> trauma and growing out of trauma to become yourself. And it's also like a gospel song for agnostics. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing. You recently won... The Spirit of Americana Free Speech Award this past September. Your father was the first artist to receive it I back know. in 2002. Yeah. You got it on the 15th anniversary of his death. Yeah. It was odd that it happened that way, but it did add some sweetness to it, you know. The fact that he was the first person to get it. The fact that it was in partnership with the First American Center in Nashville, the those people who marched for civil rights and then founded that center. The whole thing was beautiful. This is called Everyone But Me.
We'd plow a similar field Of all the bones of remembered hearts And all the crackpot dreams And all the backroom art We're on a similar course On a track later up when you were six or 11? No, was you're, it, 11, you're 11. 11. Not, it was 1966. But you stayed close with him? Was it steady? Yes, absolutely. And with your mom too? Absolutely. I mean, people tend to think because my dad was really famous that our relationship was somehow Fraught. really different <laughs> yeah. than a normal, but you know, I was the parent of a, my dad was a drug addict when I was young, and that plays out pretty much the same in every family with an addict and divorced and that plays out somewhat similarly and you know then in my teens we I went on the road with him and got close again it was it was good 
So he encouraged you in the music. He did, but in the way a parent would, not as a fellow professional, you know. That's good, honey. Keep writing. Oh, like, like any that. good parent does. Did I read that you've joined the Daughters of the American Revolution? Have you reconciled yourself to the South? I did. Oh, my God. And some of my badass DAR sisters are here. I just realized that. Okay. So I I have to offer a codicil to this whole thing. The reason that I joined the DAR is because I have multiple patriot relatives who fought in the Revolutionary War. And, you know, the DAR got a bad rap for a long time as being, you know, just a very white... um, ladies organization and super exclusive it's changed over the years drastically and i joined it because i hated trump's immigration policies so much and it was so painful it's so painful every day that i said i'm going to join the dar because my family has been here since the 1630s and i welcome everybody so i'm joining the dar And one of your concept albums was about the South. Mm -hmm. And I guess not long after that, you moved to New York City. Well, I moved to New York City in 1991. So I've been here a long time. Mm -hmm. The concept record about the South, you're talking about the river and the thread. Mm -hmm. That was after? That was the last record. That was five years ago. Oh, that was just five years ago. So why did you come to New York in 1991? You know how sometimes people say, we always thought she was kind of weird, turns out she's just a New Yorker? (laughs) That was me. I mean, I always felt myself to be a New Yorker, even long before I moved here. What was in your mind about what a New Yorker was? Well, I came here quite often as a child. Uh, In fact, people don't realize this, but my dad had an apartment at 40 Central Park South. And so I used La-dee-da. to spend. The, I know, <laughs> Wadi Da, very fancy neighborhood. Um, so I came a lot, and I just knew I belonged here. And then I married a native, so boom, there you go. And uh, there's another project you're doing, which I think is really interesting. Norma Ray on Broadway. Yeah. Well, we hope it gets to Broadway, but yes. I've been writing the lyrics. John has been composing the music. We're working with a book writer and a director. This, we're almost five years into this, and we're hoping to take it to Broadway. I think we are going to get it staged in 2020. That's great. Yeah. It's good. It's timely. You know, it's, it's about a woman's transformation in the framework of union organizing. So it's a very timely story. Speaking of timely a song that you were prescient, I think, in writing is the title song. The mm. one the New York Times dubbed one of the best, and it is angry and anguished. Yeah. You have four daughters. I do, and a son. Have you guys talked about what's been going on lately? Uh, with my, constantly, with my daughters, yeah. I have unusual children. My daughter, Carrie graduated from the new school with a degree in gender studies and a goal of being a wife and mother. <laughs> I thought that was the most beautiful post, post, postmodern thing that you could think of, right? I practically goth. <laughs> I, I know, right? And my son, um, mine John's son, bless his heart, he was filling out his college, he's in college, he was filling out his college essay 
year before last, and the, one of the questions was, what is the one thing you would change in the world if you could? And he wrote, sexism. He said, because I have a mom and four sisters and I see how much it hurts them. I said, this is such a good boy. We need more good boys like him. So talk to me about, she remembers everything. Well, I wrote the lyrics and Sam Phillips wrote the music, who is the most beautiful songwriter. If you don't know her, please check her out. Like we talked about earlier, no more Fs to give and hedging no bets at this point. But I was thinking about um, trauma. And I wrote this before the Me Too movement, before the Kavanaugh hearing, so it was kind of prescient, I think. Thinking about trauma, early trauma, and who we would be without it, and how long we spend in our lives getting away from it, and how to somehow metabolize it and move on. And the first line of the song is, who knows who she used to be before it all went dark. So there's no narrative in this song. It's like a room that she's in. And a, it's a room filled with grief and rage and urgency, like we were talking about. Mm -hmm. It also has that curious, utterly persuasive thing of being about a person outside yourself and a person inside yourself. Right. I'm glad you noticed that. What made you think of memory and women's memory? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about that before the Kavanaugh hearings. I was thinking mm -hmm. about a woman's memory in particular and that it's trustworthy. And I was thinking about what if you remembered every moment in your life? every stranger you had ever glanced at, everything that ever happened to you, every thought, everything was contained in your body and mind that would be such an enormous burden. You couldn't do it. But it, to me, there was a sense of safety and comfort in the idea that it did exist somewhere, like that there was a library of your memory that you could go to and pull out a drawer if you needed to. And that idea just captured me in, for a long time, I kept thinking about it. But it's a terrifying place. It's terrifying, but powerful as well. And then I wrote the song, recorded the song, and then the Kavanaugh hearings happened, and I realized women's memories have not been trusted throughout time. They're dealt, they're treated with suspicion. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, I don't know, but the first thing to do is to look at it, right? Why did you choose this song as the title song? Because it seemed like both a warning and a come on. <laughs> it seemed seductive and a threat at the same time. I just love that. Yeah. It's very ambiguous. who she used to be before it all went dark. Was she like a string of fire, a pane of glass, a beating heart? All the mirrors, all the smoke, charades of valentines, versions of the third degree, yours and 
are super tight, I have to say. Just running up there. Thank you. <laughs> so the response to the record's been great. I don't think I've read anything that hasn't been heaping over with superlatives. What's been the response to your activism? Mixed. Um... <laughs> I wrote this op-ed for the New York Times after the Las Vegas shooting happened, asking country musicians to separate the threads of patriotism and gun ownership. You know, they're not the same. And it seemed that the NRA had launched a campaign, a very subtle campaign, to conflate the two things. So there was a lot of blowback from that particular op-ed. And crickets from the quarter that I hope to rouse as well. So, you know, Since I mean, what are you going to do? You... You're going to not say what you think? I mean, the whole activism around gun control and everything I do there, and I've been doing this a long time, is an extension of mothering. You have to lock an aspirin bottle. You know, why are we not taking care of this? This isn't the final statement on this next phase of your life, but will you keep chronicling it? I don't know. I've never been good at five-year plans. You feel something rise up and it takes form, and then you try to get it out to the world and refine it as I perform it live and find out more about the songs. You know, Performing them changes them, and that's interesting. And audiences, In what way? The audience brings something to it. They have certain 
energy or expectations, and I love that. You never know what it's going to be like. It's exciting. I'll keep going out there. You like performing. I do. I don't, I'm kind of done with the traveling, but I like performing. You still get nervous. Um, a little bit, yeah. And my daughter said this great thing to me. She said, if you still get nervous, it means you still care about what you do. <laughs> Here's a question I'm sure you've never been asked before. How do you write your songs? <laughs> uh, seriously, you've talked about being a lyricist. You haven't talked much about writing melody, but you do. I do. In the last few years, I've written less music, and, and John has written more music. We've collaborated a lot. But there are a few songs on this album I wrote the music as well, Particle and Wave, Not Many Miles to Go, a song called Rabbit Hole. Writing music for me is purely a function of my limitations because I'm a limited technical musician. I don't play very well. <laughs> you know, I'm like the worst piano player ever born. And an okay rhythm <laughs> guitarist to John sometimes, but, you know, I don't have that facility to find things. So I tend to go to the same chord progressions a lot you know, then he calls me on it sometimes, like, could you just do something else? <laughs> but I don't know. You sit at the piano and something come, starts to come, or you sit at a guitar. And so it starts with the music. It doesn't start with a, with a line of no, usually, poetry. Usually for me, it starts with lyrics. It starts with a line, an idea, something to do with language. Do you remember how a particular line put the album and said, oh, that's what this album's about. She remembers everything, in part. It was the center of all of these satellites of ideas about mortality, loss, long-term love, gothic female being, <laughs> you know, rage. But... Not, I, that makes it sound like it's all very dark and disturbing, and some of it is, but there are beautiful uh, moments, you know, particularly of the music John wrote, like Crossing to Jerusalem. That's um, an elegy. The Undiscovered Country, which is kind of a mission statement for me, really, about letting go of the voices of the past and the woman savior at the center of the story and then hoping more for your children as they move off. Is the voice you're trying to let go of someone else's voice or your voice? You the answer first. For me? Yeah, for you. Oh, it's definitely my voice. Okay, it's my voice too. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me courage. <laughs> Roseanne Cash. <laughs> Brooke Gladstone. Yeah. 